reflecting with my wife Jody, who is with me, on our history through our families uh, with Hinson. Uh, Jody's parents, Barney and Esther McLean, were Hinson members back in the 30s, early 40s, uh, before they left to, to be uh, among those who began Evangel Baptist Church. And uh, Jody and I actually almost joined Hinson, almost, uh, when uh, uh, I was back to, to Western teaching. We, kept, we went through the membership class and uh, were about to join, but we got a letter from a pastor at Evangel where Jody had grown up, and uh, he asked us if, if we would consider helping him there in that ministry. So instead, we, we ended up those years at Evangel Baptist, but we have really appreciated Hinson. And uh, over these years, it's, uh, it's uh, faithful ministry and are just thrilled with uh, the fact that three years ago, Michael Lawrence has come and with him a team of great uh, guys as well. Dan, Dan Schreiner, of course, is very close to us because we're very uh, close friends with the Shriners and uh, it's delighted delight to see him here thriving and for Jeff to be here and others who are on staff from before as well. It's great to see the way the Lord is using Hinson in an ongoing way. And it's my pleasure this morning to be able to unpack the word of the Lord to all of us as we seek to know him better. And indeed, that's what I trust will happen, that we will see something of the greatness and the glory of God this morning that will cause our hearts both to be humbled before him. You know, that's a good thing, is it not? To, to, uh, to, to have hearts that are humble before the greatness of who God is. But because we see him as great, we're not only humbled, but we are strengthened because we realize that through Christ we are attached to the one who has everything that we need. Everything we lack is in him, in his fullness. So this morning we're going to look together at an attribute of God, which is one we don't often talk about in our Christian circles, but it's one that I have come to, to be convinced is among the most bedrock understandings of who God is, to understand him correctly and to understand who we are correctly before him. It is the attribute of God's self-sufficiency. And this morning, the sermon is very simple. There is an outline, by the way, for you in your worship folder. Uh, the outline is very simple. Uh, I'll first of all give a definition of the self-sufficiency of God. We'll think of that together and, and kind of uh, unpack a bit of what that definition is. Then I want to show you from one text in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament that, in fact, yes, the Bible does teach that God is self-sufficient. And then uh, following that, we'll move into a, a time of application and implication from the, the, the uh, doctrine of the self-sufficiency of God. So very simple, a definition, a couple passages that unpack this, and then implications and applications. First of all then, what does it mean to say that God is self-sufficient? Well, it means this, that God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Now, by quality, I have in mind what the Puritans used to call the perfections of God, what we often refer to as the attributes of God. That is everything, anything and everything that is qualitatively good. Think of, think of holiness, righteousness, justice, love, goodness, mercy, power, wisdom, knowledge. These attributes, these qualities are all the possession of God. He possesses everything that is 
qualitatively good within himself. And he possesses those qualities within himself intrinsically. Now, you might wonder, do you have to say that? Once you have said these qualities are within you, do you have to say that they're intrinsic? And the answer is, yes, you do. And here's why. Because it's possible to possess things within yourself that are not intrinsic to you. You take them in from outside. You're dependent upon something outside of yourself to take into yourself to sustain you. Now, the easiest example I can give for that is if we all, when I indicate, take a deep breath. Ready? Breathe in. Ah, feels good, doesn't it? Well, that breath is within you, but it is not intrinsic to you. You have to live in an environment where you have air to breathe, oxygen, in order to to sustain your life. Well, here's the point about these qualities that are within God. They are all intrinsic to him. No one gives him any of these qualities. He is not beholden to or dependent upon anyone outside of himself to give him something he lacks. Indeed, he lacks nothing because he possesses everything that is a perfection. Everything that is qualitatively good, he possesses it within himself by his very nature intrinsically. And he possesses these qualities within himself intrinsically and eternally. So there never was a time in eternity past, never will be a time in eternity future, is not the case now when he lacks any of these qualities. They are always his and his alone forever. And then finally, the last part of the definition says that he possesses these qualities within himself intrinsically, eternally, and in infinite measure. Now, the word infinite is a negative term, like the term atheist, right? A negative term that means not finite. So the question, of course, then comes, what does it mean to be finite? Well, to be finite is to be limited, restricted, bounded. So God possesses these qualities, all of them that there are, within himself intrinsically, eternally, and without boundary, without measure, without restriction, without limitation. My, what an amazing God God is to be the one self-sufficient God of all of the universe. Well, is this view of God's self-sufficiency indeed taught in the Bible? And it is. Turn first with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, and we'll pick up partway through this chapter where God, through the prophet Isaiah, begins to ask some rhetorical questions that are meant to to stimulate our thinking about how great God is, how, how immense and powerful he is, how wise and knowledgeable he is. Pick up with me at verse 12 and look at what uh, what the uh, prophet Isaiah has to ask here about who God is. Isaiah 40, verse 12, I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. We read this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? 
Now, think of those images that are given to us here about the greatness and the immensity of God. They are rich, every one of them. Look at that first one with me that begins verse 12. Who do you know, asks God through the prophet Isaiah, who is able to measure the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Oh, my goodness. Think of it. The Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea that would have been familiar to Isaiah cupped in the hollow of his hand. You know, Jody and I have a wonderful memory of a vacation that we had with our two girls when they were young. They're not young anymore. Well, they're younger than we are, that's for sure. But uh, uh, in any case, they're grown up now. But when uh, Rachel was about four or five and Bethany was about seven, we were at Cannon Beach uh, for uh, a couple nights and had a little cottage there that was along the seashore. We had breakfast one morning, and I read this passage to my family in light of an idea I had in mind uh, for, for them. So after breakfast then, I said to my girls, do you want to do an experiment with Daddy down at the beach? And they said, oh, yeah, they're excited. So they grabbed their towels, and we head on down there. And when we got there, I said, now, girls, do you remember that passage we read this morning from Isaiah 40, how God can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Yeah, we remember that. So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to wade out into this Pacific Ocean here, and you stay right here along the shoreline, and I'm going to lean down and scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands of that Pacific Ocean, and I want you to watch carefully to see how far the level of that ocean dips when I do that. Okay, Daddy, they're excited. They want to see this. So I go out there, and I lean down and scoop up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. Oh, I said... Look again. Let's try this again. So I leaned down and scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got down on my knees, eye level with my two girls, and I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are and how big God is. I said, I'm your dad, and I go out there into that ocean, and I scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands of that Pacific Ocean, and you cannot tell anything has changed. Now, look at that ocean. Imagine a hand that if it came down and scooped up water from that ocean, the ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. What an image this is of the greatness and immensity of God. It continues in verse 12. Who do you know who has marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? Who do you know who is able to mark off the heavens of the earth, heavens by the span of his own hand? Span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and your little finger. Who do you know who can do this with the heavens? I mean, think of the scope of those heavens. Let me just remind you of a few little statistics you know. Light travels at what speed? 186,000 miles per second. Incredible. 186,000 miles per second. At that speed, light leaving the sun takes about seven and a half minutes to arrive here to planet Earth. Traveling 93 million miles. Now, the next closest star to us, our next door neighbor, as it were, is four and a half light years away. That is, light leaving that star, unlike the sun, that takes seven and a half minutes, that light leaving that star travels four and a half years 
to get to planet Earth, traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Now, my friends, that's next door. How many stars are, are there in the Milky Way galaxy? And the answer is about 10 billion stars. 10 billion stars spread across this galaxy, sp- spread by millions of light years from each other. Now, you realize that this is one galaxy in a universe with hundreds of millions of comparably sized galaxies. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? What an image that is. Or calculate the dust of the earth by the measure and weigh the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. This is one of my favorite images. Who do you know who can hold the scales upon which you weigh the mountains? Put the Himalayas over here. Put the Rockies over here. Hold the scales that weigh the mountains. Wow, the power of God. The the immensity of God, the greatness of God is seen in these images that the prophet uses. Now, when we come to verses 13 and 14, the rhetorical questions continue, but the subject matter changes from the power of God and the immensity of God now to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Read on with me at verses 13 and 14. Who do you know, asks the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who do you know who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? What's the answer to those rhetorical questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? Answer? No one. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. Now get this one, my friends. God wants no advisors. Humbling, isn't it? Now, why why doesn't God need or want any advisors? Because his knowledge is perfect. He cannot be taught or instructed anything that he does not know perfectly already. And his wisdom designs the very best use of that knowledge to accomplish the best ends by the best means conceivable. So, indeed, my friends, we must remember this when we pray, for example, that we are never in a position where we are instructing the Almighty about things he needs to realize so he can make his decision the right way, as we understand that to be. No, we are humble before him. And yes, we come with boldness in Christ. But goodness, if Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Don't you think that's a clue that we all should realize he knows best and we must in the end yield to his ways as what are right and good. His knowledge is infinitely full. He never lacks relevant information and his wisdom perfectly designs the best use of that knowledge in bringing about what ought to happen as he has designed it. So indeed, God is infinitely knowledgeable and infinitely wise. Our place before him is to acknowledge his superior greatness, not just in power, but in knowledge and wisdom. Well, now in verse 15 is where we begin to see some of the implications of this for us. And my friends, it is humbling. It genuinely is humbling. Humbling to see this, especially, I think, for our culture today, 
that, that where, where we have raised our children on heavy doses of self-esteem. We, 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 we live in a culture in which we are encourage one another to make much of us. And honestly, in the Bible, my friends, may I suggest this? That there is no encouragement in the Bible anywhere from beginning to end to make much of us, but rather to make much of God and our tremendous privilege as little people, as 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 small and 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 needy people to be connected to the one who has everything. So look with me at implications beginning at verse 15. Behold, the nations stop right there. Nations, the collective totality of humanity taken together, all of who we are, all of our might and power and prowess and knowledge and wisdom Considered collectively, what are we like before God? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Now, my friends, both of those images, I suggest to you, amount to the same thing, right? A drop from a bucket, speck of dust on the scales, communicate the same idea, right? Of something that is little, insignificant inconsequential. I mean, I love speck of dust on the scales. Why? A speck of dust doesn't weigh in. I mean, you don't worry when you're at the deli counter and, and the lady in front of you has ordered, ordered, ordered uh, sliced turkey uh, and, and uh, he's about to press the button and she says, wait a minute, you're going to overcharge me. And you wonder what the problem is. There's a speck of dust on that scale. I mean, you would laugh at this, wouldn't you? A speck of dust doesn't weigh in. And that's the point. Now, you might think, ah, verse 15, but at least we're a drop. At least we're a speck of dust, right? Well, keep reading, my friends. It gets worse, not better. Continuing on, verse 15, behold, he, God, lifts up islands like fine dust. The idea is he plays with the islands out there in the oceans of the world the way a child plays with sand running through his fingers. Even Lebanon, that area to the north of Israel, is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, here we are back again. All the nations, the collective totality of humanity, are now what before God? They are as nothing before him. Well, I think we've been demoted. Uh, we've gone from drop and speck to nothing. It can't get worse than that, can it? It does. Keep reading. Rest of the verse. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Literally, in Hebrew, it's less than zero. I don't know how you do that, but that's what the expression is. Less than nothing and meaningless. Now, it is really important at this point to understand what God, through the prophet, means by this and what he does not mean. Let's start with what he does not mean. When he says the nations before me are less than nothing and meaningless, he does not mean I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. How do we know that's the case? That he cannot mean that. Well, how about John 3.16? 
God so loved who? The nations, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But my friends, we don't have to go to John 3, 16. We can stay right in Isaiah 40 to, to get this point. Why does God want his people to get this? To understand how great he is, how powerful he is, how knowledgeable and wise he is. Why does he want them to see this? Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to whom? To the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength and will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Why does God want his people to get this? How great he is so that we in our weakness, our frailty, our limitations our folly, we will go to him who has everything we lack and find in him the strength and the knowledge we need. Well, I submit to you, my friends, that if that's the main point that God is driving at here, then it does not mean that we don't matter to him. Right. So back to verse 17. What does it mean when God says, when I look at the nations, they are regarded by me as less than nothing and meaningless? Here's what it means, my friends. If you ask the question, what can the nations of this world, all of who we are, all of what we have, what can we add to the fullness that is God's? And the answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing can be added to God because he is infinitely full. He is the self Sufficient God. Now, let's take a look at one more passage. Acts 17, turn to the New Testament. And we'll see here also a statement of God's self-sufficiency. This from the Apostle Paul. He has just come into the city of Athens. He observes that they are very religious. And uh, begins to talk about the true God in the midst of this polytheistic culture, this culture that believes in many deities. And the irony of this is thick. The one God they don't know of in this polytheistic culture is the one and only true and living God. But they don't know him. So Paul is explaining to them who the true God is. Pick up with me now at verse 23. We'll read 23 through 25. Paul invited to the Areopagus says this to these philosophers in Athens. He says, verse 23, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this God I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, you see self-sufficiency, don't you, there in verse 25. He isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why is it he why is it he doesn't need anything? Because he has everything, right? So God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. He cannot be added to. We cannot contribute something to God that he lacks. Now, Paul grounds that understanding of self-sufficiency with three other doctrines that are so crucial that tie in here. The first one begins in verse 24, that he is creator of all that is. He begins the God who made the world and all things in it. Now, here's my question. He's driving to self-sufficiency in verse 25. What is the relation then between God as creator of all that is and God as self-sufficient? You see it? Is the light going on? What's the relation between God as creator of all that is and God as self-sufficient? Well, think with me. The doctrine of creation, as we understand this from the Bible, is that when God created, he brought into being out of nothing. Sometimes theologians use the Latin phrase creatio ex nihilo. He brought into being out of nothing everything that exists in the material world. And, and which means then that prior to that creation, God exists eternally fully as God without this creation. So doesn't that mean because God brings into existence a creation and yet is the same God before he creates that world that he does not need the creation he made? Rather, that creation needs him for how much? Well, we're about to see in a minute here for everything, for its very existence, for every property that it has, every quality that it possesses comes from him. This is why the heavens declare the glory, not of the heavens. They declare the glory of God whose handprint is on those heavens, right? His wisdom, his power, his beauty displayed in physical, visible form that he possesses within himself apart from that created order. So God as creator is self-sufficient. Secondly, not only did he create the world, but he rules over it all. Second phrase in verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 24, he is Lord of heaven and earth. And this is good biblical theology, isn't it? To create something is to own it, and to own it is to have rightful rulership over it, right? So question, how much did God create? Everything. How much does God own? Everything. How much does God have rightful rulership over? Everything. Everything, my friends. And that includes everything we, we have to put this in quotes, don't we? Possess. We're actually stewards, are we not? Of everything we have because God is owner, possessor, rightful ruler of everything, including our own lives, our families, our, our, our uh, uh, resources that we have. It is all God's. So what's the connection to self-sufficiency? Well, obviously, God then doesn't have to, if I can use this, this kind of colloquial idea, he doesn't have to borrow a cup of sugar from a neighbor because he lacks it, right? He doesn't have to borrow a lawnmower to mow his lawn. He, does, he doesn't have to do that because he has everything. It is all his to use as he chooses. 
The third argument for self-sufficiency then comes at the end of verse 25. Paul has said he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He is the giver to all people of how much? Of all things. The two uses of all in that last phrase is very significant. He gives to all people all things. Well, I submit to you, if he gives to all people all things, he must antecedently possess how much? All things. He has within himself every quality in infinite measure. Indeed, he is the self-sufficient God. All right, let's move now to implications and applications that we see from this doctrine. Four things that I have written out a bit on your on your outline so you can take them home and read them over again. It's very important to come to terms with these implications of the self-sufficiency of God. The first one is the most basic, and here it is. Because God is infinitely and eternally self-sufficient, God does not need the glorious creation that he has made, either in whole or in any part, including, take a deep breath now, including his creation of human beings. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us or anything that we have to offer. Now, my friends, this was not what I learned growing up in my Baptist church in Spokane, Washington. It was a conservative Baptist church. My parents were charter members of this church that began in the late 40s. And this was the church I grew up in from the cradle roll on up. And uh, I can remember a fifth grade boys Sunday school class. Picture it. Basement rooms, cinder blocks, you know, about, about a dozen boys shooting spit wads and, you know, all that kind of stuff going on. Fifth grade boys. I can remember the moment when a friend of mine in class asked a question I was really interested uh, to, to hear the answer to. So I perked up and listened. Here was the question. He asked the teacher, why, why are we here? Why did God make us? And without, without even a thought, this is what the teacher said. You, you could tell she, she already had this answer well in mind. This is the answer she gave. You know, before God created the world, he was all by himself. He was lonely. He had no one to talk to, no one to have fellowship with. And it occurred to him one day, I, I, I need someone that I, I, can, I can talk with and have fellowship with to fill this void in my own life. And so that's why he created us, was to fill this emptiness that God felt within his own life. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, this is a wonderful reason for living, to help out poor God. Poor, poor God is, you know, he's lonely and he needs a friend. I'll be his friend. I'll help him out. And, and then, you know, so many other things that happened in that church, in that conservative Baptist church, fit this, the model of poor God. Missionary calls. Oh, I can still hear them to this day. If you don't go. Can you hear it? If you don't go, oh God, it's, it's as though God was wringing his hands, you know, and, and he would like to get to those people, would like to save those people. But if we don't go, poor God is just stuck. He can't do anything about this. 
building programs, you know, raising money. Same kind of idea was communicated in this. It was not for years later that God in his mercy helped me understand how deeply flawed, deeply mistaken that well-intended answer was. What's the right answer? If the question, if the answer to the question, why are we here is not God was lonely. By the way, what's the theological basis for rejecting the notion that before we were created, God was lonely? What's the doctrine that answers that idea? The Trinity, the the Father, Son and Spirit in social unity, in a love relationship, in fellowship that far surpasses anything that God could have with mere creatures as glorious as that is. So indeed, God was not lonely. He was infinitely full in the fullness of who he is as God. So then capital letter B, why are we here? What is our purpose? My friends, are you ready to worship? This is just astonishing. This is unbelievable. If it weren't true, why are we here? And here's the answer. Though God doesn't need us, he loves us. Now stop right there because you realize that the love of God then is qualitatively different than love that we have for one another in which we at least in some measure love in order to be loved, help another to be helped by the other. But God's love is absolutely unconditional. He doesn't need the object of his love And yet he loves us. I'll continue. And his purpose in creating and redeeming us is not that we might fill some lack in him, but rather that he might fill us up with himself. Amazing. He made us purposely empty to be filled with his fullness, thirsty to drink of the water of life, weak to receive his strength, foolish to be corrected and instructed by his wisdom. In his love, he longs to give, to share the bounty. He wants us to experience in finite measure the fullness of joy and blessing that he alone otherwise knows infinitely. All to redound to the praise and the glory of his name, the giver and the provider of all the good that we enjoy. Here's a simple way to put an answer to the question, why are we here? The answer is this, to be loved by God. Isn't that amazing? Now you say, well, wait a minute. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Indeed, that is the great commandment. But here's my question. How do you have the love you are called to express? We love because he first loves us. So indeed, he grants us everything that then he calls us to give forth, which brings our third point of application. Why does God enlist our service? Think, for example, of the contrast between Psalm 100 verse 2 with the imperative, serve the Lord with gladness. And Acts 17, 25, God cannot be served by human hands. So which one is it? 
Well, the answer is it's both in different senses. So God doesn't need our service, Acts 17.25. So his call for us to serve, in fact, his imperative that we serve him, Psalm 100 verse 2, is a call, here it is, to participate in the privilege and the joy of ministry of grace that flows from him into us and then through us into the lives of others. We can take no credit. All we have is a gift from him. And he gives us what we have to be used in service to others. My friends, this transforms the whole notion of Christian service and, and takes away the basis we oftentimes feel for wanting to get credit for it well, and, and, and being bothered so much if someone else gets praise and we don't, and we serve behind the scenes and nobody notices us. My friends, every one of us can only serve with what is first given us. And God gives us the privilege of being filled with him and then share the bounty with others. That is Christian ministry, Christian service. Final application, with, with this we'll close. This is a very important question. How can we know and be rightly related to this glorious, rich, infinitely full God? If all of the good in life is found in Him, don't we want to know Him? Don't we want to be related to Him? And the answer is yes, we need God so badly. He has everything that we lack in infinite fullness. How in the world can we be connected to him? And here's the answer the Bible gives. In our sin, this is impossible. We cannot be related to the one who has every good thing that there is. It's impossible that we are related to him. Apart from God's grace, we are eternally separated from this one who alone is good, true, wise, and beautiful. But through faith in Christ. Why did God send his son? Why did he do this work? Was it merely to forgive the guilt of our sin? Which he did. Praise be to God. But is it merely to do that? Oh, no, that clears the deck so that now as people who no longer stand before him as guilty sinners, we may be brought back to him to receive from him all that he has to give to us out of his fullness flowing into our lives that need him above everything else. So, my friends, what love, what grace, what mercy what joy is ours in God that only comes through Christ? Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted him as your personal savior? Have you acknowledged his death on the cross? Paid the penalty for your sin that you could never pay yourself. And through faith in him, you are reconciled then to your creator God. Believe in Christ and you will be saved, and you will enter into joy unspeakable. So, my friends, let's pursue this God. He is, he is there for all of us in Christ to grant to us what we lack out of the infinite fullness that he has. May we be jealous to go after him and find in him the true joy that our hearts long for. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege this morning 
of reflecting upon your greatness and glory. And as we have concluded, to understand all of this happens only as we trust in your son's work on the cross for us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for his perfect work of atonement for our sin, that we might know you through Christ. And Lord, give to us who are yours hearts that long to grow, to know you more and receive from you every day what you have to give us through your word, through the ministry of the body of Christ, through good preaching and teaching. Give to us what we need so that we might grow ourselves indeed, but then have the bounty to share with others in ministry. May you be praised, Lord God, for your goodness and grace to us in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.